The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. So this morning we do get a little bit of a, a break in the, the normal subject matter where the, the focus has been on Abraham, and he, he is certainly in this chapter. Um, he is not the main character of this chapter. We, we get a break. This isn't unusual for Genesis. We, if you've gone through the Joseph story before, you get that random, uh, I believe chapter 38 is with Judah and Tamar, and it just kind of comes out of nowhere, and then goes back to Joseph uh, being the predominant figure. And these, these passages are in here for a purpose. So I don't want to throw this chapter away as if it doesn't play a part in the narrative that we've been walking through. But it does tell us some things um, that are a little maybe unexpected in Genesis chapter 19. If you, if you were here last week, you know that we, uh, we saw these three men appear to Abraham as he dwelt uh, by the oaks of Mamre. Uh, we talked about how one of these figures is the Lord. I mean, the very first verse says the Lord appeared to him. And then in today's passage, two of those men uh, who are actually angels, they turned towards Sodom as the Lord remained and had a conversation with Abraham. And Abraham interceded on behalf of Sodom. And he got down to 10 well, if there are 10 righteous people here, will you spare the city? And the Lord says, yes, I will do it. And then we get today. So today is the conclusion of Abraham's intercession, and we'll see what happens. And it's funny, because if you were here last week, and we, we read these first three verses as we're about to, you might say, man, that sounds really familiar. It sounds oddly familiar. So let's turn our attention to Genesis 19, verses 1 to 3. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. That's why I'm calling this section a meal revisited, because there are so many parallels and overlaps of what happened at the beginning of Genesis 18. For example, there's a meal. There are angels that come, and, and they, they come in the appearance of men. There's someone who's cooking, invites them into their house, and they eat together. But if, if you remember the details of chapter 18, you see that there's, there's some important differences here. What are we to make of these differences? Well, the first one is that it's evening instead of morning. I, I believe this picture of, of evening and the darkness is, is this ominous opening that paints Sodom as a, as a dark place, as a sinful city. Instead of how Abraham was dwelling at the door of his tent, where is Lot dwelling? The gate of Sodom, the gate of the city. This is now Lot's dwelling place. He's residing in the place where the heart of Sodom's business takes place. 
That's at the gate. This is, this is where the business took place. People met there. It, it shows us that Lot is invested in this city. And then when we actually get to the meal, nothing quite meets the extravagance of Abraham and the Lord meal together. We see that Lot rises and meets them as they approach. But what did Abraham do? He ran. He ran to meet them and greet them. Lot says, please come dine with me. Abraham, this extravagantly, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Lot's meal consisted of unleavened bread. And it does say that they had a feast. So maybe he cooked a lot of unleavened bread. But what does unleavened bread tell us? That it was cooked hastily. There was no time for the yeast to rise and to make leavened bread. That's, that's the story of the Hebrew people as they escape Egypt. Why did they cook unleavened bread? Because they had to get out of there quickly. Well, maybe Lot wanted his guests to leave quickly. I, I don't know. But Abraham's meal had all these cakes, a tender and good calf, curds and milk. And we see Lot in his meal. There's, there's really no household participation in this meal. Versus Abraham, who gets his servant to prepare the tender and good calf. He gets his wife to cook the cakes, and he brings them curds and milk. See, this real warmth of hospitality all the way around Abraham's household. All this is showing us is that we're not, we're not by the Oaks of Mamre anymore. It's really setting the stage and foreshadowing about what we're going to find as we move through this passage. Something feels different about this meal compared to the previous one. And what we're going to see in Lot is foreshadowed here, that he, he's a mixture of some interesting um, ideas of what it means to be hospitable, of what it means to be um, a follower of the Lord. He surely did show hospitality, and the angels did indeed share a meal with him. There's something different. The text quickly moves. You feel this in, in verse 4, but before they lay down, there's a mob. It's our part two, a mob rebellious. Let's read in picking up in verse four. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the, door after the, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the door. They pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they, were grope, they wore themselves out groping for the door. 
This is probably one of the most infamous passages of Genesis 19. Maybe when you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, this is the passage you think of, the section of it. What exactly is going on here? Well, we get this mob who sees visitors come into the city of Sodom, and they have their intentions of what they want to do. I don't know why in the earlier verse that Lot presses them strongly to not stay in the city square and instead come to their house, and it may be because he's seen what this town has done to visitors before. And if he had those, that anticipation, he was correct, because before they could even go to sleep, the men have rallied. You get this picture of the entire city of Sodom. The men, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. It just paints a picture of how perverse this city has become. And what is their request? That we want to know, bring them out to us so that we may know them. There are people who have made the case that to know them just means to get to know them intellectually. But we see this word appear in the scriptures again and again and again as far as knowing somebody sexually. We see it as early as um, uh, how Adam knew his wife Eve and bore Cain and Abel. We see this in the very next uh, section of, of chapter 19, verse 8. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. What is he saying there? It's not that his daughters have never met a man. It's that they've never been sexually active. They're virgins. So the men of the city want these visitors for immoral sexual activity. When we get this comment from Lot, let me, let me bring out my daughters to you and do to them as you please. Just don't do anything to these men, for they have come under my house. Don't take the fact that we don't get an immediate condemnation of Lot's actions as the Bible's silence on this kind of thing. In fact, what we're going to see happen again and again is Lot is this mixture of right and wrong, of good and evil. But obviously, what Lot is doing here is not the action that he should have taken. But they get, they get angry. They get angry that he has denied them. They refuse his offer of his daughters, thank the Lord, and they start to say, we're not going to take no for an answer. And it's only from the intervention of these angels that Lot is saved, that he is saved in his household, that his daughters are saved, and he strikes the, cr the crowd with blindness. But it doesn't stop them. They're groping around for the door. It's a heavy passage. It brings up at least one main question for me, what exactly was the sin of Sodom? What was the sin of Sodom? Something is wrong here. We feel that. We know that. Something is wrong here. And I, I say there are two dangers to avoid. This is condensing a lot of time spent in this text over, over probably the past decade of my life. Two dangers to avoid. Number one is that thinking this passage has everything to do with homosexuality. 
that this is nothing but uh, about that sin. And the second danger to avoid is that this has nothing to do with homosexuality. There are people that have made that argument. I talked about one of them before, that this was uh, the men just wanting to know uh, their visitors, but they didn't have anything evil in mind. I, I, don't, I don't see how you can make that argument. It really, it, um, it balances on a uh, later verse in, in Ezekiel chapter 16 that we're about to get to. But this, this is what people have said. They, they've said that this is not about homosexuality. This is about the instance of, of gang rape, of a forced sexual encounter on somebody that doesn't want it. Is that a problem in this text? Of course. Of course it is. It's about a mob forcing themselves upon visitors, not about the consensual monogamous relationship of two men or two women. That's what the argument would be. I do think the first danger, thinking that, that this text has everything to do with homosexuality, and that is the only reason that the Lord judged this place, is also wrong. Number one, because there was actually no instance of homosexual sex in this passage. There was an attempt, there was the desire, but there was no action, as we'll see as we continue. Number two is the comprehensive nature of this mob that all the men from every part of the city, both young and old, it is, it is unlikely that every single person in the city would have identified as homosexual. This, this was more about a form of domination asserting power over someone. That's why we can say that it is not unlike the act of prison rape. This isn't an expression of attraction or orientation, but it's an act of domination. Those are things to consider, that we don't want to misunderstand this as, as has been done in the past, that, man, God is just so disgusted by homosexuals that he destroyed a city full of them. This text does not address people who may have same-sex attraction and don't desire it and don't want it and are praying to be delivered that are trusting in God's revelation as what is good and what is sexually moral, this text doesn't address those things. So if you are here this morning and you know someone who is same-sex attracted or you are same-sex attracted, you, you fight and you battle with these temptations and these desires, you are, first of all, welcome here. And secondly, the type of condemnation that the Lord reigns upon Sodom and Gomorrah in this passage. Just be careful in saying A equals B when they are so clearly different. But the second danger of saying that this has nothing to do with homosexuality and that homosexuality is not a sin 
is equally just as dangerous. We could go to a plethora of other verses in the scriptures. We read one this morning from Romans chapter 1 about how the sin of Sodom absolutely had to do with people denying natural relations with opposite sex and being inflamed with passion and desire for one another. It's absolutely true about this. The best way to interpret this is maybe to see how the rest of the Bible talks about the sin of Sodom. So we have four quick passages that we'll run through. This is not, Sodom is, is an infamous city. It is the epitome of God's judgment in the Old Testament. It is the epitome of God's judgment, rivaled only by the flood. We'll talk about the similarities of the flood and Sodom in just a moment. But this is how the rest of the scriptures talk about Sodom. First of all, Jeremiah 23, 14. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Evil. No one turns from his evil. They just walk in lies. Isaiah 3, 9. For the look on their faces bear witness, bear witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They proclaim it. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. So something about just the blatant sin. They don't hide it. They're not ashamed of it. They're proud of their sin. Ezekiel 16 that I mentioned just a, a moment ago. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. You see how this is more complex than just there were gay men in Sodom. did not aid the poor and needy, pride. They had all of these things and yet did not share them. And they committed an abomination before me. Could that be talking about the way Leviticus 18 talks about uh, men lying with men as they would with women as an abomination? It could be, absolutely. And then Jude, verse seven. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality, and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And there we get one of the strongest evidences that absolutely homosexuality was in mind as one of the sins of Sodom. Unnatural desire, unnatural relations. It actually, the, the Greek, as plainly as it can be, is strange flesh. And now some people, in arguing against the fact that homosexuality is not in mind here, would say that that just meant because they were trying to have sex with angels. And my argument against that is they didn't know they were angels. They thought that they were pursuing other men. The sin of Sodom is this. Complete rebellion against all of God's creation order. Complete rebellion against all of God's creation order, complete carnality, only seeking to satisfy the flesh and never walking by the Spirit. We see this rebellion manifest in multiple ways. 
attempted rape of sojourners, attempted breaking into Lot's home, threatening of Lot for denying their request, despising Lot's warnings and his call to rational thinking, insatiable lust in the continued groping around after being blinded, and yes, of course, in the perversion of nature. But church, I, I, I want to make the argument that the seeds of Sodom were planted by Adam and Eve. Let's not focus just on Sodom. The seeds of Sodom were planted in the Garden of Eden when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they rejected God's wisdom. Sodom is the picture of what it looks like when all that is truly good is seen as evil and all that is truly evil is seen as good. And lest we mistakenly think that Sodom was somehow the most wicked city in the world simply because of the practice of same-sex sexual immorality, and therefore, we're, or you are somehow safe from God's judgment because you would never think of any, doing anything like that. Luke 13, 1 to 5, offers this sobering reminder. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered in this way due to their judgment? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Do not mistake the wrath of God poured out on the city of Sodom as if they were any worse sinners than we were. Judgment comes quickly. The extent of the judgment does not tell us the extent of our sin. We know people who are great sinners who have lived long, healthy lives. And we know righteous people who have died horrible deaths. We cannot mistake that. After the mob rebellious, we see a message rejected. Verses 12. Um, 12 to 14. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we're about to destroy the, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, Get out, of the, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy it. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Lot follows the orders of these angels. He runs to the people who are dear to him that are uh, engaged to his daughters. And he offers the warning. And what do they do? Silly Lot. What are you talking about? Everything here is good. We're prospering. We have ease. We have excess. He seemed to be jesting. You know, if you have been um, in church for quite a while, you, this probably sounds familiar. There will always be scoffers. In Second Peter two, in Second Peter verse chapter three, we see that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they'll say, "Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep." All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Scoffers will always be there. 
They reject the message. But Lot is still faithful to offer it. When, when you're thinking about preaching in a city like Sodom, prepare to be rejected. Prepare for the message to be not heeded. We are uh, warned that that will happen. Um, to move quickly on to the next part, uh, after the message is, re- is rejected, we see that mercy is required. Mercy is required, picking up in verse 15. And as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords, behold, your your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is is it not a little one? And, And my life will be saved. He said to them, him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities And what grew on the ground, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. There are some people in the Bible who have uh, nicknames infamously. Number one, Doubting Thomas, right? I, I say that we call this guy Lingering Lot. This is what, when, when I read this passage, it just blows my mind. How could you linger? What made him linger? What made him linger? I believe we get the answer to this in his subsequent request. He asked to be allowed to go to a small city called Zoar. And he says, I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. What does he mean by that? Despite the warnings which he heeds half-heartedly and is lingering, Lot isn't ready to give up the city life. He isn't willing to go to the hills and forsake the life of luxury he's grown so fond of. Remember when Lot chose the land a few chapters ago? And he he looks out over all the land and him and Abraham are choosing where where they're going to go because the land where they're dwelling cannot um, provide for all of them. Their, Their estate has grown so large. And Lot, he sees what is good to his eyes and he chooses and that, that tells us, I mean, there, there is archaeological evidence that shows that the area that is Sodom and Gomorrah, which is now pretty much uninhabitable under, underwater, it used to be a fertile land. It used to be a fertile land. And Lot saw this. He wanted to dwell there for the abundance and the fruitfulness. But in dwelling within this rich area, what did it cost Lot? 
even though he has come so dangerously close to losing his life in Sodom, he desires to remain somewhere close by. But the bigger question, why is he allowed to bargain at a time like this? Why do the angels and ultimately the Lord accommodate his wishes? I see the main purpose as as the text is showing us that Lot is still wrestling with his fleshly desires. He does not fully trust the Lord. I'm not saying that he's not a part of God's family. I'm not saying that he is not saved. But he's, he's happy to be saved from Sodom's destruction, but he is not as willing to go where the Lord is leading him. And if that doesn't sound like some of us, First of all, the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 14. You probably have heard these passages, these verses as well. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, Lot, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It plays out here. That is what our God is like. It plays out here in Sodom with the temptation of Sodom that Lot was enduring, which he's obviously been overcome by. God provides a way out. He provides a way out. Second Peter 2, we see this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, I, am that, I did not add that word. Rescued righteous Lot, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. We saw that. Brothers, don't act so wickedly. For as that righteous man, again, really, twice? Righteous lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul three times over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. I think this was self-torment. He kept himself there. And do I stay a part of the city of Sodom because I'm used to it and there's luxury and there's abundance and I'm making wealth here. But yet he was tormenting his soul. Verse nine, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. If you have been rescued by grace, do not look back. Do not linger. Run. Escape. If you have escaped, are you far away from where you were? Or just a step or two? Have we run away from the fire of judgment? Or are we still warming ourselves by the flames? Our prayer should be, Lord, drag us out of our filth. Even if we are kicking and screaming, even if we are lingering, do not wait for us to give you the okay. We need God's gracious intervention. We need God's gracious 
intervention. Mercy is required here because Lot is a fool and so are we. If we had the opportunity to linger and stay in our sin, we would take it. But what happens in this passage? They take him and his family by the hand and drag him out. Do you feel like that's what grace has done for you? Or do you feel like you just made the best decision and God is just applauding you? Or do you feel like he has taken you kicking and screaming into righteousness? There's a verse that even the dullest among us, myself included, can remember. If you're not good at memorizing scripture, this is your verse. It is three words. It comes in Luke 17. We'll start in verse 28, but it's the memory verse is verse 32. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, right? But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. There it is. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. If you are tempted, if you are lingering, if you are dwelling too close to the place that you have been called from, remember Lot's wife. She looked back. I don't, I don't think this was a fact that there was something magical about looking on the fire and sulfur that turned her into a pillar of salt because as we're about to see, Abraham looks too. It's not the looking. It's the fact that she wanted to preserve her old way of life. And she got caught up in the judgment. And this new city of Zoar will prove to be another test for Lot as well, as we'll see at the end. The fifth, the fifth section A motive revealed, verses 27 to 29. Abraham, there he is, the guy that we've been focused on, went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of of the valley, God remembered Abraham, and sent Lot out in the, of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered Abraham the whole time. Again, going back to the fact that 2 Peter 2 calls Lot righteous, and in my mind, I'm thinking, how? How? Why does he spare Lot? I can't figure it out until you get to this passage. God remembered Abraham, and I think this, we're helped out by this strange comment back in verse 22 of Genesis 19, where the angel, after Lot's request to go to Zoar, the angel says, escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. What does that mean? I believe that this points to how God had commanded those angels to withhold the destruction of Sodom until Lot was safely delivered. I can do nothing until you arrive there. It reminds me of the book of Job where Satan is only allowed to do certain things. He's only allowed to go so far. 
because of God's command. So it begs the question, why did God command that Lot be delivered safely? Because he remembers Abraham. It was because of his faithfulness to Abraham, because of his faithfulness to his promises, because of Abraham's intercession from last week. This is such good news for those of us in Christ. If you're worried that God has ever forgotten you or that you might get lost in the chaos to accidentally suffer the fate of the wicked, even though you don't deserve it because you're in Christ, there is absolutely no chance of that happening. Because while Abraham remembers Lot, Jesus Christ remembers you. He will not forget his promises. The father's faithfulness to the son will make sure that before before this world passes away and the new heavens and the new earth come, you will be safely delivered. Find hope in that. The last and final section, verses 30 to 38, we see misdeeds repeated. At this point, Abraham is looking on a smoldering city. And we think it's over. It's over, right? Sin has been judged. The the righteous have been saved. The wicked have been killed. And then we get the strangest passage section in this chapter. One that I, I doubt you've probably ever heard a sermon on. At least not just on this. Starting in verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the, man, after the manner of all the earth. So come, let us make our father drink wine. We will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. There's a lot to be said about this passage um, that we won't say today. Suffice it to say this morning that Lot shows himself in this passage to be in a terrible spiritual state. When these daughters say, let us make our father drink wine, nobody nobody forces you to do this. I believe in Lot's mind, he's lost everything that he's been working towards for years. He is lamenting his rescue. He is lamenting and mourning over the fact that he is not where he wanted to be. Instead of booming Sodom, he's been rehomed in little old, little old Zoar, the hills even. And we see here that Lot raised his daughters in Sodom and they became daughters of Sodom. 
They retaliate with their own sinful scheme, doing what seems right in their own eyes, as we've seen everybody else in Sodom doing. Lot has failed in his duty to disciple, to protect, and to provide for his family, shown in offering his daughters to the lust-craved mob, and he's experiencing the results now. In other words, he's planted sour grapes, and he's now getting drunk on the spoiled wine. At a base level, this shows us that drunkenness, even in our own homes, is not wise. But it shows us more than this. There's this repeating narrative. Think back to Genesis 6. We have Noah. God rains, this time, water on the earth and destroys wickedness. The flood subsides, humanity begins anew, and then what does Noah do? He gets drunk. And one of his three sons, Ham, does something lewd while he's drunk, showing that the flood didn't solve the sin problem. Not not that God thought it would. But now Sodom is judged and destroyed, but sin continues. This is the very next paragraph. The Bible is emphasizing there is need for more deliverance. In fact, Genesis 19 isn't even the last time that a mob would demand to know some city visitors, if you're familiar with the Levite and his concubine in Judges 19. This judgment was obviously not the final one, but this was not God's final offer of salvation either. In this sordid section of Genesis 19, we hear about the perverse beginnings of Moab. As many of you probably recall, recall out of the Moabites, comes Ruth. Out of the line of Ruth comes our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is still hope. Sodom, the Bible's go-to example of God's judgment against sin, the only city that might rival Sodom in the Bible is the city of Babylon. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 18, we read a passage that really sounds like an overview, a summary of what just took place in Sodom. But the language shows that now Babylon has become the Sodom of the entire world. Read with me this last passage. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Sound familiar? Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. In the very next 
passage in Revelation 19, we see the saints praising the Lord for his judgment upon Sodom. It's not because, ooh, gross, they're so wicked. Ooh, gross, they're so sinful. Ooh, gross, they are gay. Ooh, gross, they are sinners unlike me. It's because as the people of God, we long for the day when sin is no more. We understand that we have to be delivered from the day that it's judged as well. And in this passage, Genesis 19, we see the disaster of sin, the destruction that it brings. We see the terror of judgment, how quickly in a single day and completely God's judgment against sin will be. But we also see the beauty of mercy, the call of grace, and God giving us the power to escape. Would you heed that call to not linger, but to escape Would you pray with me? My God, what a world you love. What a world that you have not abandoned. Things really haven't changed since the days of Sodom. And yet, here you are in your long-suffering, steadfast love towards us. For those who say, The the world will continue like this forever. Where's the coming of the Lord? It's no big deal. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Would we remember the only reason you haven't come yet is because of your mercy. God, help us not look back. For those of us who have been delivered, help us not look back. Help us look to where you're leading and see it In faith, we would not walk by flesh, but as the righteous do, by faith. We need your power in the moments where we're arguing with you. Lord, I give you, and I hope everybody else gives you, we want to be saved. Change our desires where we're lingering, where we're we're dwelling too closely to the things that you've saved us from. Change our desires. Give us new ones. As we await the day where sin is ultimately finally destroyed. Jesus, our great intercessor, protects us and delivers us. And we pray it in his, his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.